With that being said, let's turn uh, in our Bible to Acts uh, chapter 3. If you uh, don't own a copy of Scripture, please use this this morning as your own. This uh, reading this morning is quite long, so I'm going to just jump right into it, and then we'll pray. Um, It's uh, actually Acts chapter 4, and we're going to be reading verses 1 to 31. Okay, 1 to 31. So if, you, if it's been a while since you've cracked open the Bible, um, go almost all the way to your right, and you'll find um, the book of Acts there in the New Testament. So hear these words from um, Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple for the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. A man who was lame from birth was being carried there. He was placed each day at the temple gate called, sorry, I'm in chapter three, what am I doing? Let's go chapter four, okay, let's start over. I got that tryptophan thing going on. What is wrong with him? Chapter four, while they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain, the temple police, the Sadducees confronted them because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them and took them into custody until the next day, since it was already evening. Many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. The next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they begin to question them. By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. Since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition After they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves, saying, what should we do with these men? For an obvious sign has been done through them, clear to everyone living in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. So they called for them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you Rather than to God, you decide, for we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them further, they released them. <clears throat> they found no way to punish them, because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. For this sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. After they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, sovereign Lord, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage 
and the peoples plot futile things. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the, through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we ask right now that you would fill us with the knowledge of yourself. God, would you help us as we consider this text, as we hear in the power of your Holy Spirit these words spoken to us. I pray that these words would be alive, that they would illuminate our minds, that they would inflame our hearts, they would move us to respond similarly. God, that you would give us the same boldness, the same courage, the same confidence that in the midst of an array of false powers that seek to oppress us, to threaten us, to conform us, God, that we would be a community of resistance, of bold resistance, speaking clearly and persuasively in the Spirit and experiencing and encountering the empowerment of your Spirit as a community as we press into prayer together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know uh, if you've ever had an experience where very quickly things go from elation and, and kind of awe and wonder to just absolute terror. Um, the, the, now, this is going to be a really bad analogy to set this up, but just this, this kind of came to my mind this morning as I was thinking about this passage. Uh, when I was um, in college, I spent the summer living in uh, North Africa in Morocco, and uh, a group of us, I mean, this is like sounds idiotic to me right now, but like a group of 20-somethings out in the middle of the desert just doing whatever. Um, we're supposed to be there like in the name of Jesus, but we're just being, you know, typical 20-year-olds. And we, we thought, man, it'd be a great idea to go uh, to this place that none of us had ever been um, without any adult supervision um, and to go cliff diving. So we went to the uh, cliffs of uh, right off the, the kind of the coast there of Morocco. You could see kind of Spain uh, along the way there. We're like, let's just jump into the ocean, a place we've never swam before. It looks pretty safe. Uh, we'll just jump in and see what happens. And, and it was amazing. It was a beautiful uh, thing. So there's a group of about you know, six or eight of us, and we just jump off this massive cliff into this ocean. And, um, and we're like, we'll figure it out. It was, it was awesome. Like, it, was, it was initially amazing because we jump in. There's that thrill and the risk of like, jumping into the water. Then we were like, oh, we forgot to try to figure out how we're going to get out of the water because this is really strong, uh, like the winds are strong, and the cliffs are, like we begin to look back, and we're swimming around, and we're having fun, and we're splashing each other. Then all of a sudden we look back, and we're like, oh my gosh, we don't know how to climb back up this cliff. Like there's no obvious way back up. And by the way, the, the waves are coming so hard, they're literally dashing up against the rocks. And we're like, oh, that's the place we've got to climb. And all of a sudden what was initially like awe and wonder and amazement, we just jumped off a cliff into the ocean, became we're going to die, right? And like for the next half an hour or so, we struggled against the currents to get back to 
uh, this little platform, and, and the waves would kind of crash in, and then they would, they would draw back out real quickly. And so you had a window to basically throw each other up onto these jagged rocks. And so basically after about 30 or 45 minutes, we all like literally had like hunks of skin missing and bleeding, and we're all messed up. We finally kind of, in my mind at least, in my memory, barely survive, and we kind of crawl our way back onto land. We're just like, this is amazing. We're so glad to be alive, right? Like, and it was just one of those moments where something that was full of such joy and awe and wonder and amazement quickly turned to, like, terror and fear. And I don't know if you've had that experience where you've been out somewhere doing something crazy, and then all of a sudden you, you have a brush with death, you know? Um, that's kind of what is happening, I would imagine, here in chapters three and four, um, again, just to take us back a couple of weeks ago, James, uh, Pastor James preached uh, chapter three, and three and four are really one uh, big literary unit, okay? They're all kind of part of, it's one big story, and it revolves around the healing of this poor uh, disabled man who uh, had, we think, some sort of condition um, for the majority of his life, and uh, Peter and John, the apostles, uh, disciples of Jesus, they, they, they pass by this man and they, they look at him and they touch him and they heal him. And, uh, and it sparks this kind of awe and this sense of joy and amazement from the crowds, right? Like he literally tells a man to get up. He grabs him by the hand and immediately his ankles are strengthened and he's able to walk. And there's just this collective sense of awe that falls over the crowd. And it gives them this opportunity to speak to the crowd about the deeper meaning of what's going on, right? Like, it's not just about the healing of this man's physical body, but it's about the kingdom of God breaking out among them. And they, they, they kind of look at everybody and say, why are you amazed at us as if the power came from us? We want you to, to look through us and to see the power of Jesus, right? That's what happens when the church is out doing things in powerful ways in Jesus' name. It's kind of a look at us, but don't look at us, look through us and see Jesus and what we're doing. He is the one that gives the power. He is the king, the true king, who's bringing a kingdom of healing into this world. And you'll see that word salvation or healing pop up uh, throughout chapters three and four. The word for salvation, like uh, 412, there's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. If you've done any like evangelism training, you probably uh, memorized that passage or something when you were a kid. Um, that word uh, save, that word for salvation is the word sozo. And it's, it's a word that can mean both healing of our physical bodies and the salvation of our souls. It's the same word. And it actually is intended to be used in both ways, right? Like the healing that Jesus brings is this complete healing of our bodies, our souls, our lives for those who would turn away from trusting in themselves and would give Jesus their allegiance. And so they preach this amazing speech and there's this euphoria that kind of sweeps over the crowd. And, and the scripture tells us in, at the beginning of chapter four that 5,000, at least 5,000 people, so 5,000 men, and then if you kind of factor in you know, uh, spouses and children, could be 10 to 20,000 people all of a sudden come to know Jesus as Savior. And that's where we kind of leave ourselves, where we, where we left off a couple of weeks ago. And then immediately verse four is like the dun, 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 you know, like while speaking to the people, all of a sudden the the, the powerful people show up, right? Like the, the authorities begin to show up as, as they always do when good things happen. Authorities have to kind of show up to, to validate, to make sure that everything's legit, right? And so the priests, the captain of the temple police, the Sadducees confront them because they were annoyed that, the, that they were teaching the people and proclaiming 
in Jesus, the resurrection of the dead. So immediately, we're, we, we are dialed into what is really the key theme in chapters three and four, right? The, the key theme in chapters three and four, what you'll see mentioned time and time again, is about power. It's about authority, right? Um, in, verse, in chapter three, they talk about you know, how the power uh, didn't come through them. Chapter three, verse 12, why do you stare at us as though we had made him walk by our own power or godliness? Now we're gonna see the authorities come to the disciples and say, by what power are you doing this or in what name, what authority, by whose authority are you doing this, right? This is intended to draw our attention to this kind of conflict of rival powers. And, and that's really, the first thing that I want us to see in this text, that's really what holistic gospel work will do. It will always provoke opposition from false powers. When we're truly demonstrating and declaring the good news of Jesus in the ways that Jesus and his disciples did, just as happened to Jesus, happens to the disciples, will happen to us. If we are doing good, holistic gospel work, we will provoke opposition from false powers. Right, like all of us, we love a good, he- I, I, I don't know you guys, I love like a good healing story. Like chapter three is like, oh, this guy's healed, this is amazing, right? And we love that, but then immediately there's that turn to, to terror and that turn to fear when they begin to link this good news, this, these good works, which again, very few of us are gonna have a problem with like somebody disabled getting healed, right? Like we like that part of the story, but when it's linked to the explanation of why that happens when it's linked with preaching the good news, when demonstrating the good news is linked with preaching the good news about the source of that healing, now we're gonna get into opposition and threats. That's the tension that we should be living in as we carry out the work of Jesus, right? Like people love a good transformation miracle story, but not so much the preaching of Jesus, and it's those two things together that, that are going to get them into trouble here over the next couple of chapters. And, and really, chapter four is the beginning of real intense opposition beginning to break out uh, against the disciples. When the power of the gospel is unleashed through this healing, it provokes conflict with the rival powers. Now, something that's often missed in uh, teachings on this passage is that the source of the opposition is not what we would expect. Um, I, I've heard this taught a lot, um, and, and people tend to focus on kind of the, the persecution of Christians. And then we wanna immediately go to, well, we're, we're a persecuted minority, and we live, and you know, secular government is gonna come and you know, do some like, 19, I just read 1984, so it's gonna be in my sermon illustrations for a couple weeks here. Um, but the opposition is going to be some like secular, governmental, dystopian thought police who are coming to suppress Christian freedom. But notice that the opposition, especially in the earliest chapters of Acts, don't come from the Roman authorities. It comes from the religious establishment. And this is just like what's caught my attention all week. Like the most violent expression of hostility in the book of Acts comes from the religious community. Like, why is that? that? That's like bothered me, like just looking at this again and, and seeing this with fresh eyes. Why would people who, the people of God, right? The, the, the Sadducees, the priests, the people who, who live and basically control the temple life, the people who are supposed to be waiting in expectation for Jesus and the coming Messiah become the most violent oppressors 
of the Christian movement here in the early chapters of Acts. What happened? And that, that's just, I wanna get to the prayer here in a second because I think that is really the crux of this passage, but it, it just, I, I think it's helpful for us to understand a little bit of context here uh, because if we don't understand this context, we're, not gonna, we're gonna miss what's happening because this will come up again in chapter five. It'll come up again in chapter seven and eight. It'll come up again later uh, in the book uh, as we move through the book of Acts. So let me just do what I'll just call an anatomy of compromise and bring us into the world of a Sadducee for a second. Because I think it's helpful for us to understand how we got to this place. And I think there are some lessons in here for us as well as we think about our own moment. The Sadducees were basically a small sect of tight-knit Jewish families who made up uh, what we might call the wealthy aristocracy in Jerusalem. They held immense social and political and economic and judicial power because they had control of the temple, right? Like you see here, uh, this, the priests, the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees, right? They, they controlled this complex of the temple, and they were granted a certain amount of freedom by the Roman government to enforce law and order through the temple police. They also uh, were the teachers of the Torah, and they interpreted the Torah for the people, so they had immense kind of religious power, and they had a ton of legal power because they were given, again, by the government, the freedom to adjudicate the majority of legal cases. That's why when Jesus healed a man, he said, go and see the priests, right, and present your case to him, right? They would adjudicate all of the, uh, the majority of the legal cases unless they were, uh, you know, kind of larger uh, threats to the social order, right? And what's interesting is that the Sadducees, had both conservative elements, what we would call conservative elements or factions, and they had progressive factions, both kind of politically and theologically, all within this broader coalition known as the Sadducees. But what united them, despite their ideologies, what united them was this common pursuit of cultural power through collusion with the Roman Empire. What united them was the pursuit of power that then led them to compromise. Now, what's interesting about the Sadducees, they are heirs of political revolution. They are heirs of the Maccabean Revolution just a few generations earlier, and they became over time so disillusioned uh, by, by waiting on God to vindicate them, right? After they, they lost control, they temporarily seized control, they lose control to the Greeks and the Romans, and they eventually, I think, just lose hope in the coming of the Messiah. And they eventually get to the point where they even reject the doctrine of the resurrection. That's their key kind of point of tension with Jesus and with Paul. They don't believe in the resurrection anymore. They don't believe in the coming kingdom anymore. Their horizon of possibilities of what God could do, I believe, were limited because of what they'd experienced. Their horizons of possibility were limited to finding prosperity in the here and the now within the givens of imperial Rome, right? Like, God's not coming. God's not gonna come to save. God's not gonna fulfill his promises. So the best we can do is try to make peace by living with Rome as a given. And in this ironic twist, these revolutionaries become the aristocracy, right? The, the oppressed become the oppressors, we see this in the cycles of history. And they get to this point where they, they love security so much, they love comfort so much 
that it begins to eclipse their love for their own people and their ability to wait on God to fulfill his promises in the Messiah and his resurrection. And so they become this, this kind of these defenders of the status quo. They stand against any revolutionaries. The old revolutionaries now are standing against the younger revolutionaries. In this passage, the disciples coming with a message of, of joyful liberation in Jesus because it begins to what? Threaten their monopoly of power. Howard Thurman, in his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, says this about the Sadducees. Their tragedy was in the fact that they idealized the position of the Roman in the, in the world and suffered the moral fate of the Romans by becoming like them. They saw only two roads open before them, become like the Romans or be destroyed by the Romans. And they chose the former. Thurman goes on to talk about, he was a civil rights leader, right? He goes on to talk about how this is the position of many who sit under oppression for a long time is they have this kind of binary choice between them. And oftentimes they choose the path of assimilation rather than resistance. This is why the healing of the lame man and the apostle's speech provokes their outrage, right? They begin to recognize, uh-oh, there's a power here that it's eventually gonna grow to eclipse our power and this, this kind of uh, compromise that we have with the Roman government. Um, and, and this is something that we can't control. Notice it says they were provoked, they were annoyed, they were frustrated because they were teaching and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They were teaching and proclaiming not just that Jesus rose from the dead, but that Jesus was the first the first fruits of a new revolution where now the kingdom of God is here. Now Jesus as the forerunner, Jesus as the first fruits means that the entire world order is being flipped up on its head. The world is being turned upside down or you might wanna say it biblically being turned right side up because of the kingdom of God. And that means they're in trouble. If the, if the resurrection of Jesus is true, it doesn't just mean a dead man got up out of the grave. It means a whole new world order is coming into the world. It means the status quo is about to change. And that's why this, these words are so poignant. Um, when they, they quote this psalm, um, this Jesus, Peter says, is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the keystone, the capstone, the cornerstone. What he's saying is, you are builders. You've built a world. You're attempting to build a temple, to build, which was actually physically being constructed this time. You're attempting to build a society. You're attempting to build a world order without the presence and the power of God. And Jesus has come, as he said in his own words, to tear it down stone by stone and then to rebuild it with himself as the keystone that holds it all together. That's always gonna be a threat to false powers, whether they be political or they be spiritual and demonic. Resurrection is a threat to the powers. And I think what we see with the Sadducees, lest we think that we are above that, what we see with the Sadducees is a cautionary tale. It, it is, I believe, a failure of formation. The, the very people who were heirs 
of the promises of God, lose heart, sell out. They, they, they give themselves to a false peace. I love those words. They're haunting in Jeremiah. He says to the false prophets, you say, peace, peace, where there is no peace. You, you heal the wounds of my people lightly, and you're going to come under judgment for it. This is a failure of formation, a failure of integration, of integrating the promises of God into their reality, losing heart, and only seeing reality through the lens of imperial Rome and their own safety and their own comfort. And it leads them to this place where the people who are operating, they think they're operating in the name of God. They think they are God's agents protecting God. But it leads them to being opposing the very work of God. I mean, that's the irony here. They think they're doing this in God's name, and they're actually opposing the new wineskins and the new work that God's doing in Jesus. I, I think we should be very, very circumspect about this. I, I'm not saying that we shouldn't get involved in politics or hold positions of authority and power, but I'm saying don't underestimate the perils of these kinds of false peace. Don't underestimate how easy it is for all of us to get caught up in the pursuit of power in a way that puts us on the wrong side of God's purposes in the world. Economic power, political power. I mean, I think the strongest current that we see at work in our own cultural moment is this kind of pursuit of power. That we see the same dynamics at work as disillusioned and maybe disenfranchised or at least fearful religious people, not unlike the Sadducees, in their own ways seek power through political activism. This is what um, theologian Scott McKnight calls uh, statism, right? And this is really the dynamic at work here, I believe, with the Sadducees, statism. America's dominant narrative today is statism, the theory that the state ought to rule and the state can solve our problems. It's a belief that the solutions to our biggest problems are found in the state, and the Christian's responsibility from the left or the right is to get involved and acquire political power. Statism is the idol of making a human, an office, a seat of power, a constitution, the world's true ruler. Statism exalts humans and human plans and voting laws and government. Statism centers its faith in the future on who rules in D.C. Statism makes government a god. Statism is a secular eschatology and soteriology. Now, I love what he says here. Don't make the mistake of accusing others of the statism narrative. I find a lot of that, right? These are the, these are the real political idolaters. They're the, they're the right or they're the left. But notice what he says. Don't make the mistake of accusing others. It's as much the story of conservatives and Republicans as progressives and Democrats or social Democrats as well as of the holdout independence. Alliances, allegiances, seeking to make peace, ultimately benefiting ourselves instead of waiting on God's power. I think we, we learn some things, right? Like, it, it is so subtle. It's so easy for us to lose our integrity when we get involved in pursuing power. 
right? Like just some things I think we see in this passage in these two chapters, some signs, some warning signs that our Christian commitments have been co-opted by statism. Let me just point out a few things. Um, When the pursuit of political power begins to eclipse the source of true power, true spiritual power, we might be falling into this statism, right? The pursuit of political power begins to replace the pursuit of true spiritual power through practices like preaching the gospel and the good news of Jesus, like uh, pursuing the healing of the poor and the vulnerable. To identify with the poor and the vulnerable often is gonna put you at odds with the prevailing powers, right? And so when we stop doing that and our interests become only about those already in power, we may have a sign that our priorities are awry. When we give up the kind of desperate corporate prayer that we see in this passage that depends on God for his power rather than saying, you know what, with time and energy and organizing and strategizing, I have all that I need to make the world right. Another sign that our commitments may have been co-opted is that we are driven by paranoia rather than metanoia. We see in this passage fear and anxiety which, which provoke the threats Instead of metanoia, which is the word for repent that the apostles use over and over and over again, the word metanoia means big-minded or or think differently, think at a a bigger level. Don't allow yourself to be swept up into the fear and the anxiety of thinking that God is not in control of the universe. And that kind of anxiety and reactivity, when that begins to characterize our posture and our speech, the inevitable result is kind of a fleshy, like threats and cursing and violence, even towards fellow disciples of Jesus, instead of a humble confidence, a spirit-empowered ability to do what the disciples do here, is to look these people, even those who are threatening them in the face and say, I pray for you, I I pray that you would come to know Jesus, that you would experience the blessing and the times of refreshing that come from knowing Jesus, the ability to bless, to heal, to call to repentance in Jesus' name. That's the kind of boldness they have. They don't fall into that paranoia and that reactivity. And then I think the third thing we see is there's a valuing of comfort. This is the heart of the Sadducees, a valuing of comfort over critique. One of the ways we know that our Christian commitments have been co-opted by powers that are false is that we're never, we never find ourselves at odds with or inciting opposition from our political ideologies or parties. We're never at odds with our party. We're never at odds with the thought leaders of our day. We become like the dominant culture instead of resisting it. We have an inability to receive true, pro- receive true prophets who critique our comfortable compromising allegiances with false powers. And that's what we see in the Sadducees. And so I just want us to be aware of that trap. It's a failure formation. Now, notice... They go on to, um, to, to preach about Jesus, which is a very similar teaching uh, and speech as we saw back in chapter three. And, and I want you to notice they, the Sadducees take note of how powerful this preaching is. It says, when they observe their boldness, which that word boldness is gonna be used 12 times in the book of Acts. Anytime the preaching uh, about Jesus and his death and his resurrection uh, comes up, most of the time you'll see that word boldness come up right alongside of it. And it's a reference to kind of a spirit-inspired wisdom and clarity and persuasiveness in communicating 
how the good news of Jesus makes sense of reality. They're amazed, right? These are all trained scholars. They're amazed that these men are untrained in rabbinical law, and they're lay people, and that they speak with the wisdom and the fearlessness of philosophers like Socrates. There's always this kind of amazement that they have the ability to give this message that can't be dismissed and a power that can't be denied because they've been with Jesus. And this is the essence of discipleship, being recognized as those who've been with Jesus. And their only response And they can't discredit the message. They can't disarm the power. The man's standing there right in front of them. They can't dismiss. They can't discredit. They can't disarm. And so they resort to the only tool at their disposal, the threat of legal and physical and state-sanctioned violence. Now, the question I just want to close with is, where does this boldness come from? Where does it come from? How do we get access to this boldness, right? Boldness in the book of Acts is not how we tend to think of boldness now, right? We tend to think of boldness as being a cynic, right? Or being a jerk, right? Like that's not the kind of boldness, being a contrarian that we're talking about in the book of Acts. Boldness is just a word for being clear and persuasive with the message of Jesus in the face of adversity. That's what boldness is. And that is, I would argue, true power. And we see just very simply that true power comes from a deep life, of, deep, deep life of prayer together. Power, prayer, they go together in the book of Acts. Without prayer, there is no power. Power, without prayer, there's no power. Without power, there's no prayer, you could say. I mean, take note of the fact that their first instinct when threatened is the spiritual practice of contending prayer, corporate prayer together. They don't do what we might do if we, when we're threatened. What do you do when you're threatened, right? We all have kind of like a fight or flight, right? We rage and, we're, and we say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get back at them. I'm gonna punch back harder than they punch at me. That's kind of the moment that we live in. It's escalating punch. It's just kind of a punching match to see who can fight back harder. They don't rage and they don't withdraw and they don't retreat, they don't just say, forget it. We're going over here and we're gonna do our thing. Forget about the rest of the world. No, they stay engaged. But they engage with true spiritual power. I love the way that Tertullian describes one of the early church fathers, this kind of prayer. He says, this kind of contending prayer is a holy conspiracy by which we may set upon God by a force that is welcome to him. It's a holy conspiracy by which we set upon God by a force that God welcomes, God wants us to press in with this kind of prayer. Remember, as a primarily Jewish Christian, a group of Jewish Christians, they are a powerless minority within a minority, right? The Jews are a minority. The Christians are a minority sect within the Jews. They have no legal or social recourse to protect themselves against these threats. They are completely exposed. They're afraid, as you would be if you had no power. Now, later we're going to see that Paul shows us a way to use our power. He's going to use his Roman citizenship strategically for self-protection. It doesn't mean that we never use that. It's not inappropriate to leverage political power at times in order to restrain violence when it's in our power to do so. But it's not the primary source of the kind of power that energizes these disciples 
and gives them the kind of spiritual authority that's needed to transform the Roman Empire. What they needed most was, a, was an inner transformation that comes by reorienting themselves to a bigger perspective. That's what's happening in this prayer. They're reorienting themselves together to God's bigger purposes, God's providence, God's promises, and God's presence. That's what prayer does. That's the power of prayer. It's not closing our eyes and escaping from reality. It is a clear-eyed, looking reality in the face, and in reality, looking through reality to see the architect, the author, the true power that's at work in the world. This is true power. To go to God in prayer together is to access the deepest and most transformational kind of power that exists. That's what's happening here. I mean, they're just reorienting themselves to God realigning themselves to what God's been doing in the world for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. They're reinterpreting their moment through the lens of who God is, who he's promised to be, what he's promised to do, and they're grabbing hold of that and saying, we're not gonna let go, God, until you move. Like Jacob wrestling with God in Genesis. I mean, that's why they go to the Psalms. You notice they quote the Psalms, Psalm 2, Throughout the book of Acts, they quote the Psalms. That's what the kind of prayer that we see in the book of Psalms is not polite. It's not dignified. It's not like sitting with your hands cussed in church. Oh, God. You know, it's not like this kind of like faux, you know, kind of like piety, you know, kind of a false piety. It's a on your knees with your tears soaking the ground and your knees rubbed raw because you are facing threats and powers that you can't control. And, in, and Psalm 2 is just one of those psalms where they look out and they see the nations raging. They see this tumult around them and it's closing in on them and they, they cry out to God. God, why do the nations rage? The people's plot in vain. This is a coronation psalm that was used at the coronation of the kings of Israel to remind them about the essence of true power. In the Psalms, this pattern emerges, right, where people get disoriented by life and then reoriented by praying. It's this pattern of disorientation, reorientation, disorientation, reorientation. They're drawing on this deep well of imagination from God's work in the past to energize and, and interpret their life in the present. That's one of the, the benefits of prayer. One of the things that we've lost, it provides kind of a map for us. One of the things that we've lost in, uh, some of you don't even know what I'm talking about, in the transition from uh, paper maps, like when you used to have to go on a trip somewhere, you'd have to go to AAA. Some of you are old enough to remember going to AAA and getting what's called a triptych or getting like one of those old atlas. Anybody actually have an atlas or a real map in their car, in their glove box? Okay, some of us, right? Some of you are like, what are you talking about? Right? Like you had to unfold that map as you're driving the car and like at your peril, or like almost dying. You're trying to like center the map and drive and you can't see and you're trying to figure out where you're. But, and it takes a minute because when you get that paper map out, unlike our maps now, on your phone, one of the big transitions um, to GPS is now when you open up a map, you just get that blue dot, right? And it, everything centers around you, around where you're at in that moment. The old school map, though, you actually had to open up the map and you had to locate yourself within the larger scope 
of the world. You had to have a bigger perspective and then to find yourself on the map. That's kind of what's happening here in this moment. Right? Like the temptation is to, to open up our GPS maps and to interpret our cultural moment with us at the center. And everything then revolves around us. And what they're trying to do here is to open up the map and to reorient them to God's purposes, God's providence in the world, to say, hey, opposition, that's always been a thing for the church of God. We shouldn't be surprised when the nations rage, when the peoples plot. What's different this time around, though, is it's not the Gentiles, it's the religious establishment coming up against them, but that's okay. They've always aligned themselves. Don't freak out, he's saying. This is what happens when you align yourself with God. Powerful forces will array themselves against you, but that's okay, because God is more powerful than they are. God is more permanent than they are. God's purposes always prevail. And so they're just rehearsing the scripture together, reminding themselves in prayer, it's God who's powerful. It's God who's the maker, as the Apostles' Creed says, of heaven and earth. It's God who, in the end, will win. And this becomes a way for them to reinterpret their moment and the larger purposes of what God has been doing and will do into eternity future. And so that's why they just pray for boldness. They pray for boldness to speak clearly and persuasively about Jesus. Notice what's missing from this prayer that fills, I'm just gonna speak for myself, fills my prayers. God, would you give me this? God, would you protect me from this? Would you deliver me from this? There's no prayer for deliverance. There's no prayer for get us out of this. God, take us away to your holy mountain. Let us escape this place. Notice they say, we're here and we're probably not going anywhere. We're not upwardly mobile. We don't even have those options. So we're here. We're not praying that you would take us out of the world, that you take us out of this, although they will pray that sometimes later. But the primary prayers in the book of Acts are give us boldness. Give us confidence in you that allows us to speak the word of Jesus even when all these powers come up against us. I mean, these are just not prayers that we pray. I don't know about you, like this is not the way that we pray. We don't pray with this kind of expectation. We don't pray these kinds of prayers. God, just make us bold as we show up in our workplace. God, make us bold as we work in your name in the community. As, we, as you stretch out your hands to do signs and wonders God, help us to explain why those signs and wonders are effective and not just be content with the signs and wonders themselves. Give us that kind of boldness. And God does it. God gives them the boldness. God stretches out his hands. And we see this chapter closing with this collective experience as they pray together and they lift up their voices and they attune to God and to one another they experience the presence and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost strikes again. The place is shaken, which in the Bible, when something shakes, it means God's presence is there, right? Because his presence is so weighty, so glorious, so beautiful. It's like uh, when you step out onto thin ice around this time, you know, the ice starts to, and, and it's not quite solidified, a heavy presence on thin ice things begin to crack and to shake under the weight. That's what's happening when God shows up. There's an intensification of his presence. There's intimacy with God. They, they begin to experience God is real. That's what we need when we're afraid. We need to know not just that 
Christianity is true. We need to know that it's real, that God is there, that he's with us, that he's for us. That's what we need more than striking back with political power, more than organizing against power, more than strategy. We need to be feeling and experiencing the presence and the intimacy and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. I love the way that John Christensen, uh, fourth century preacher, says, the more the place was shaken, the less the Christians were shaken because they prayed and they experienced the power and the goodness and the love of God. They experienced that as more powerful than their opposition and gave them the freedom and the confidence to share Jesus. Now, I just want us to just close for a moment together with just a little bit of prayer. I want to give us a little bit of space to do this same thing together. And I know this may be weird, and that's okay. We're, we're just going to be a place where it's weird. Um, but I want us just to open up some space for a few minutes of this kind of prayer together. And then I'm going to close our time. So you can close your Bible, and you can put your notes away. And I just want us to, in this same spirit, take a few minutes. So just take three or four minutes, because that might be for some of us, you know, uh, unusual to do that in church. But let's just take a few minutes, and maybe you grab somebody around you, your spouse, maybe your missional communities around you, your discipleship group. Maybe you just do it by yourself. We, it can be silent prayer. We could do it vocally. Let's just begin to lift up our voices and pray these kinds of prayers together. Let's just ask God, remind ourselves that God is good, that God is powerful. Let's just rehearse that reality that God is the maker of heaven and earth, that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, that God is sovereign in control that nothing that's happening to us in our lives that we're experiencing, not COVID, not uh, racial unrest, not social unrest, not crazy political stuff, none of that catches God unaware and none of it is more powerful than God is. And so let's just lift up our voices and ask God for that kind of boldness to see Jesus, to experience him, to, to preach him, to, to demonstrate him in our lives and acts of mercy and justice and shalom. And then let's just pray that God would shake us, would shake this place with the power of his, his Holy Spirit. So I'm just gonna give us a couple of minutes. You do that, you break up in twos or threes. Let's lift up our voices together and then I'll close this in prayer and we'll go to communion and we'll celebrate the reality that Jesus has come, he's with us and he's for us. And so let's just take a moment to pray together, okay? As you continue to pray, just continue to lift up your voices. I wanna join my voice to yours. Continue to pray in your groups or silently. I wanna lift up my voice and let's just lift these up to God together. Lift our hearts and our minds, our fears, our anxieties, our hopes and our longings to God. Let's ask for his boldness. Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth and the sea and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit by the mouth of our father David, why do the Gentiles rage? Why do the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. God, we thank you that you are powerful, that you are in control of all things. God, that as different spiritual powers and principalities array themselves against you, and we see that manifest in our world in all kinds of evil, unjust expressions. God, we, we recognize that you are true power, that you are in control, that you are the authority, the author of life, and God, that nothing happens, nothing can separate us from the power of your love. Nothing happens outside of your purposes and your providence. And so, God, we ask that you would consider 
these threats, these, these things that come up against us that we feel pressing in on us into our bodies and souls, these temptations, these fears and anxieties and worries that we carry about the world that, that can lead us easily into places of reactivity and violence. And God, we pray that we would not capitulate to that, we would not assimilate to the spirit of the age but God, that you would grant your servants to speak your word, to speak your message with boldness, with confidence in who you are and what you promised to do in the world. God, would you give us clarity? Would you give us a winsomeness? Help us to be persuasive in speaking about the reality of Jesus as the fulfillment of our longings and our hopes and our dreams for the future. It's the, thing that, the only thing that can heal our wounds, the only thing that can liberate us, that can bring salvation, the only name by which men can be healed, can be saved, is found in you. And so God, we pray that you would give us that kind of boldness as we move out into our neighborhoods, into our families, into our workplaces this week, whether those be digital spaces or, or in-person spaces. God, would we be bold? And would you just stretch out your hand to give credibility to these words for healing, healing and signs and wonders, acts of mercy and justice and miraculous intervention and the reversal of the curse in our lives. Would you perform these through the name of your holy servant, Jesus, and would you just shake us now, shake us with the presence and the power of your spirit. God, we want to experience again the love, the intensification of your Holy Spirit internalized in us, moving in us and through us and out into the world. God, we pray that your fire would fall on us as it did at Pentecost, and we would experience a shaking to our core that can only be explained as a move of God that empowers us to be your witnesses in the world. We pray all of these things, and God's people said together, amen.